Well, why don't you remain standing for another moment and take out your Bibles? And we're going to turn this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I hope you are being blessed and strengthened and instructed and encouraged as we have been working our way through Mark's gospel here. And pray that you continue to be as we embark upon this message this morning and on into the future. Mark chapter 6, we'll read the first six verses this morning. Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray now that as we hear it preached, that you would bless the preaching that you would bless the hearing. We pray, Father, that we would be built up in our most holy faith, uh, even as we are reminded of those who have no faith. And we ask that you would glorify yourself among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated now. Faith is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is perhaps the greatest gift of all the gifts of God. And the reason for that is because that is what unites us to Jesus Christ. It is faith given by the grace of God to a sinner. It's that faith that that looks to Christ as the only source of salvation and which rests in Him, which trusts in Him. The picture is often given of faith as that empty hand that receives the gift of God and salvation. Faith is that which believes on Christ in recognition that He is the only begotten Son of God come into this world and taking our nature to Himself and living among us and dying among us that He provided salvation for us, that he obtained eternal redemption for us, rescuing us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and bearing the righteous judgment of a holy God. Faith is that which receives the benefits of what Christ came and accomplished. We are indeed, as Paul says, 
saved by grace through faith, through faith alone, faith in Christ. And so faith is the most valuable gift, the most important gift that any human can receive. And so it is therefore perhaps the greatest possession that could be imagined other than that which faith receives. And because of the centrality of faith, because of the importance of faith in Christianity, it is also true that the most dreadful condition that can be imagined is a lack of faith. A lack of belief in Christ, which is the invariable condition of a hardened heart, a dead heart, to the claims of Christ and and the person of Christ. And if lack of belief is so destructive, hardened unbelief is even worse. And what's the difference, you may ask? Well, I think it's summed up in that old proverb that says there is none so blind as he who will not see. Which is not in the Bible. It was written in the 1500s, that proverb. But the idea is all through the Bible, which speaks very powerfully, very negatively about those who have eyes but do not see and have ears but will not hear. It's a phrase which, and an idea which, ironically, is at one time used to describe dead, carved idols of stone or wood, such as in Psalm 115, and at other times, God uses it to describe, sadly, His own people, such as in Jeremiah 5 and, and Ezekiel 12 too. A determined, unwavering unbelief A hardened heart is the saddest thing that any human being can possess and the most destructive. For that is the man who is without hope. Without hope in this world and more importantly, without hope in the world to come. This morning we are going to see an example of such a determined unbelief in the most unlikely of places and among the most unlikely of people. And as we hear it this morning, let us pray that we don't find it in ourselves. So we come this morning to chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. And as we do, we are coming off of a record here, as Mark gives it to us, of really a, a fairly successful ministry, time of ministry in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee there where Jesus has been ministering for almost the whole book of Mark. Jesus has enjoyed great interest in his work, a great following in his ministry. Of course, there have been instances of unbelief, even active opposition. Remember, especially in the case of the scribes and the Pharisees and how they are already beginning to plot how to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus' ministry, as we've read it, has has been quite uh, successful, we might say, in his encounters with the the natural forces of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, uh, in his encounter with the supernatural forces of unclean spirits in the possession of many people, two are recorded for us, 
one in a synagogue back in chapter 1, and the one man of the tombs in the area east of the Sea of Galilee there. And in Jesus' encounters with illness on several occasions, we've seen Jesus uh, heal people. Even in encounters with death, as we saw last week, in Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, we see Jesus ministering to people and people responding to that. People have been following him. They've been thronging to him, crowding him. They've been listening to him. And in some sense of the word, they have been believing him. Of course, as Jesus told us in Mark chapter 4, in the the parable of the sower, uh, not everyone's interest in Jesus is quite what it seems. But this morning we will be reminded that not everybody was ready to believe Jesus. In verse 1 of chapter 6, we read that he went away from there and came to his, own, his hometown and his disciples followed him. So after this time of ministry up around the Sea of Galilee in, in Capernaum and the, the areas around that, Jesus and his disciples now leave that area and they travel the 20 miles or so to the southwest to what Mark calls here his hometown which we know is the town of Nazareth. Of course, he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born, any of our children could tell us where Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem, near Jerusalem. But he was raised in Nazareth, which was where Mary and Joseph lived. It is from Nazareth, Mark told us at the beginning of his gospel, that Jesus came when he went down to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Nazareth, as a city where Jesus and his disciples come to here, uh, a town, really, a village, really, is a very insignificant city. It's so small that it was not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It was so small and insignificant that there was not found a a church in the city of Nazareth until the 4th century. It only occupied about 60 acres, and the population of Nazareth was less than 500 people. So a very small community, practically everyone knew practically everyone else. So as Jesus comes here to Nazareth, this is something of a homecoming for him only in the sense that he is coming back to the town uh, where he was raised. His family still lived there. This was not a personal visit. Uh, This is a ministry visit. Jesus is just moving his ministry uh, from Capernaum. Now he's going to come here to Nazareth and minister there to teach, as we'll see, his disciples something about, well, about rejection is what they're going to learn this morning. We read that his disciples followed him. So here we have Jesus' old family in the city of of Nazareth, and we have his new family. Remember he said that those who do the will of God, that those are his family. Those are with him now. They are coming with him to Nazareth. And when he arrives, he continues to adhere to his usual routine 
And so as a, a good Jewish man, we find him going to the synagogue, as was his practice. To going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, verse 2 tells us. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So we find something else there. Not only does he go to the synagogue, but as a visiting rabbi, the ruler of the synagogue, remember we learned about them last week, the ruler of the synagogue calls upon Jesus to expound a portion of the Scripture. Again, a regular practice in the synagogue. We talked about that last week as well. And so Jesus' visit seems like it's off to a pretty good start here in Nazareth. Goes to the synagogue. He's asked to, to address the people, and he does so. And it continues to be a, a good start here as the people hear Jesus speak. Because verse 2 goes on and says that many who heard him were astonished. Their initial reaction to Jesus' teaching seems to be similar to what it was back in the area of the Sea of Galilee, where it said there as well in chapter 1, verse 22, that they were astonished at his teaching. And the word that's used here is a word that means something like, in our vernacular today, that, that they were blown away by Jesus' teaching. His teaching, the, the content of his teaching, the things that he taught. And what was it that Jesus taught when he taught in the synagogues? We learned it earlier in the book of Mark. He taught concerning the kingdom of God, and he taught the gospel of God. Remember? That's always what Jesus teaches about. His teaching and his content, the authority with which he taught, as in other places, had a strong impact on these people that heard it, as one would hope and one would imagine that it would. But immediately, we begin here to see cracks in the dike, as it were, because the people don't say what a powerful message regarding the kingdom of God, what a simple, clear presentation of the gospel of God, but they began rather to show their unbelief. Because they began not to be amazed and drawn to Jesus, but to question him. They began to question how this teaching can come from this man that they know, that they have known for a long time. They began really to give their own version of Remember Nathaniel at the beginning of John's gospel when, when he asked, when he first heard about Jesus, what was his response? He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's kind of what they're asking here. Now, of course, they wouldn't be extending their doubt to the whole town where they live, but they're looking at Jesus and focusing on, on the problem not with what they heard. They were astonished at that, Mark says. The problem is with the one who's saying these things. The one that's come into their midst now. Again, they're familiar with him. They know him. They know who he is. They've heard reports. We'll see uh, in a moment that they more than just heard reports of what he had done. But all of this that Jesus had done, all that Jesus had taught, are discounted by the people of Nazareth except it causes them to ask, how can this one be doing these things? That's what they ask. And it begins vaguely enough. 
They say, where did this man get these things? Notice, this man, where did this man, this one? Already they're showing their growing scorn for Jesus. In the same way they say, what is the wisdom that's given to him? How does he know this? How are such mighty works done by his hand? And mighty works were done. We learn at the end of the passage that he healed a few people while he was there. But all of this again that he had done, all that he had taught are all discounted because of their unbelief in the one who was preaching. It begins with curiosity in those questions that we just saw, but then their curiosity turns to skepticism. It turns to innuendo as they begin to show the the depth of their incredulity that their hometown boy turned out so differently than the others in his family and the others in the town. That he's come back now as one who has healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, forgiven sins. And they ask in verse 3, as they go on with their questions, they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? He says, and they took offense at him. Isn't this the carpenter? They say. Now, we today sort of romanticize this idea of Jesus as a carpenter. We see it as a positive thing. But let's make no mistake this morning as we read this, this is not meant as a compliment. It's not, oh, my, see how far our our carpenter has come since he lived here and, and worked among us. No, the idea here is more like, what is this carpenter doing teaching in the synagogue? Yes, his teaching is amazing, but still he's just that boy who used to follow Joseph around and learn from him and learn to build things and to fix things and then to do that on his own. Isn't this the carpenter? The word for carpenter there in the Greek is the word tectone. And it's a word from which we get our word architect, which means something like a master builder or a lead builder. It refers to someone, this word tectone does, that we think, we often think of Jesus as a carpenter just working in wood. But a tectone would would often work in stone or other media. He could probably do a wide range of, of jobs, especially in wood, but not only in wood. He would make um, out of wood, he would make yokes uh, for, for oxen. He could uh, make uh, beams and such for buildings that were going up. It was a very broad um, idea. He was something like a, a woodworking, stonemason, handyman. He could do it all. He would have been technically quite skilled in the town uh, and physically strong. A real blue-collar worker. And though the tectone was an important person in the village... They were not held in high esteem particularly by people at this time. Like like today, very often. The blue-collar 
laborer, while critical in the services they provide, they are still not held up in the way that a doctor or a lawyer or a professor are, much to our shame. You know, when young boys are asked, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not many are going to say, I want to pour concrete. Or, or I want to be a farm laborer. No, they say, I want to be a, a doctor. I want to be a, an astronaut. I don't know if they say that anymore. Uh, but, but Jesus, as a carpenter, would have been trained as one, and he would have worked alongside, at first, of Joseph. And the point is that Jesus had no religious training. A charge that will also be leveled against his disciples, remember, in Acts 4.13. And the point is that this statement, is this not the carpenter, this is a shot at Jesus, demeaning him, and as we'll see, giving an excuse for not accepting the things that he says. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, there's some discussion with that next phrase there about what what is exactly being said. It was very uncommon for someone in those days to be described as the son of their mother. In this uh, society, the way it was, uh, they would more likely be described, or they would be described as the son of their father, even if their father was deceased. And so we would expect them to say, is this not the son of Joseph? Now, We know that that would have been inaccurate anyway, don't we? Since Jesus, though he was the son of Mary, was not the son of Joseph. Again, we learn that every Christmas. As we recall, the angel speaking to Joseph after his fiancée Mary was found to be pregnant, that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's in Matthew one twenty. In Luke's record of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, that angel tells Mary herself that the Holy Spirit would come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. So it was true that Jesus was not Joseph's son, but Mary's, and that he was the Son of God. But still some say that if Joseph is dead, that they may be falling back and calling him the Son of Mary, because Joseph uh, is dead. And it is generally agreed by this time because of the absolute silence about him. Uh, that he is out of the picture for some reason, probably that he had passed away by this time. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that there persisted in the area, particularly there in Nazareth, uh, where Joseph and Mary lived before the census and the trip to Bethlehem. There has persisted then a rumor that Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. That was the reason that Matthew tells us that Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. And it's what prompts that explanation from the angel that I just read to you. And so calling him the son of Mary would be a reminder, a little dig, 
that according to the scuttlebutt, his true father was not known, and that Jesus was, in their eyes, an illegitimate child. Of course, we just went through the explanation of the truth of that. So that could be what is being said. In fact, that's probably the predominant opinion, is that that's what is being done here. Maybe, it may not be, we don't know for sure. But again, it's a, a distraction, it's an excuse for not believing him. It's a derision toward Jesus. And not only is, the, is he the son of Mary, not only is he a carpenter, not only is he a son, the son of Mary, but he's also, it says here, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters are living here in town as well. We know this man, the people are saying. We know his background. We, we know his family. Now, we also might here at this spot remind ourselves of Jesus' family's own opinion of him. They're not mentioned, of course, here in this, in this passage at all. Remember that their idea of, of Jesus... Maybe not so, or certainly not so much Mary, but the others, their opinion of Jesus, well, just to put it simply, they thought he was crazy. Remember Mark 3, when Jesus is, is wearing himself out in, in filling out his ministry. Mark 3, 21 says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind to be doing this. And while we know that Mary was a believer, the rest we know, his brothers we know, did not believe in him while he was, or not before his resurrection. John 7, 5 tells us that. And even then, even after the resurrection, only two of Jesus' brothers that we know of, James and Judas, uh, who came to, are those that came to believe in him. And by the way, both of those went on to write books of the New Testament, the book of James and the book of Jude, written by Jesus' brothers. James uh, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church after he is converted and comes to believe in Christ. Of his sisters, we know nothing other than this statement here in Mark that he had them. It's interesting that those who knew Jesus best his family, and the people here in Nazareth, or perhaps earliest, that knew him earliest, knew him least. Because they're demonstrating here that they consider Jesus only according to the flesh. They knew him before his baptism. They knew him before his public ministry. And they refused to believe that he could be anything more than the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of these men and women. And John, as John wrote, though he meant it in a slightly different way, remember he wrote in John 1.11 that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's what's going on here. They saw Jesus only with natural eyes. They saw him only with the eyes of unbelief. To those of his hometown, he was too familiar. Too familiar for them to believe in him. If only he were more... Godlike, they might believe in him. 
It's ironic, isn't it, that while man tries to invent a God that is like him, that he doesn't want to worship a God that is too much like him. And the statement of Scripture and of the Christian creeds and confessions is that Jesus Christ, true and complete God, while remaining true and complete man, took on a true and complete human nature, yet without sin. He was made flesh and he dwelt among us, but the people of Jesus' hometown didn't believe in him. And the result, Mark says, and this is the crux of the whole thing, at the end of verse 3, he says, and they took offense at him. Jesus in Matthew eleven six 6 said, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. But these people from his own hometown did take offense at him. They refused to believe. They were not just unbelieving, but they, or they just, they did not just not believe, but they were unbelieving. And so in verse 4, we see Jesus' response to this situation. And he quotes here in verse 4, but he quotes not from Scripture here, although this, again, the meaning of the words here are borne out in Scripture, but he quotes from a common proverbial axiom of the day, a a saying that was commonly applied to philosophers. In verse 4, it says that Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. We have a contemporary version of that proverb today when we say that familiarity breeds contempt. If you know something or you know someone too well, it tends to reduce their standing in your sight. And that happens in many ways. I remember when I was just a few years out of seminary that I found out that the church where I had and Cindy had gone, where we had cut our reformed teeth on the good theology of this church and we were there for several years, found out that that church was vacant. And they were in need of a pastor. And I, a little bit out of seminary, uh, thought, well, certainly I would be a good candidate for this. They know me. I'd been there. I'd taught there. I'd preached there. And so I applied. I sent my information and the, the, the ways that you do that. And, and I hopefully, uh, naively, but hopefully not arrogantly, thought, this will be a good fit. And I'll tell you, I didn't make it past the first look. And I was stymied by that. And I talked to the man who had left there, pastor, good friend of mine, a a, a mentor of mine, and I talked to him about it. And he said to me, Gene, he said that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. He said, familiarity breeds contempt. He said, they know you too well. Not that there's anything wrong with you, but they just know you too well. And so it's hard for them to then see you as a pastor. And so that happens today. But the proverb here that Jesus, on the lips of Jesus is saying that even a prophet 
who is typically held in the highest esteem there in Israel. Remember that the offices of of king and priest and prophet were the offices on which the nation was built and through which God himself had established and guided his people. That even they, even the prophets, will experience the appropriate honor due to his office throughout the land except, he says, in three contexts sort of concentric circles, in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. The most familiar places, and that's the problem. The familiarity, the rapport, the togetherness works against them. And familiarity and rapport and and togetherness, those are all good things, but they tend in human relationships to, to even out our feelings about one another. We don't typically remain close friends with someone that we think is either far inferior to us or far superior to us. And so with our close friends and our families, we come to think of everybody just like us, even if they're a prophet. And perhaps here the hardest one to accept is the middle one of the three. He says, among his relatives. Again, remember that Jesus experienced that when they came to Capernaum. His family did looking for him to try to seize him, the text says, for they were saying he was out of his mind. That's what they thought. Jesus also mentions that a prophet is not without honor except in his own household, in his house. And sadly, that remains true today, that in many places Jesus is not honored in his own household in the church. He's been expelled from his own house in many places today. His name has been reduced to a slogan. He has been reduced to our buddy. His teaching has been removed or even flatly contradicted in the teachings of many of the church, his house. The name of Christ is hardly mentioned in some churches today. He's been removed from the center of churches as other things have moved in to take that place. And in the place where Christ should be the most honored, the most exalted, his word is silent as it's replaced by the teaching of men and the doctrine of devils very often. In the place where Christ and his word should hold absolute sway, his influence is gone, declared to be outdated, quaint, narrow, too exclusive, or as I like to say today, on the wrong side of history. The prophet of God who is the very living word of God is dishonored in his own house. Rejected in unbelief. But Jesus says that a prophet is not without honor except in those places. This is the first place, by the way, where Jesus is referred to as a prophet. But as time goes on, we'll see that the people are already speaking of him as a prophet, as they did of John the Baptist, as a prophet. And we know that Jesus will follow that path that he his the aspect of a prophet's life that that he will experience will end up not being the honor that a prophet experiences but will be the rejection 
another Old Testament theme, the rejection of a prophet by God's own people. And he will ultimately suffer the fate of many prophets, death. A truth that will even be foreshadowed here, just in this chapter, a little later in this chapter, with the recording of the death of John the Baptist. But as a result of their lack of faith and acceptance, their acceptance of Christ, their lack of acceptance of Christ, Mark says this in verse 5. He says, And he, that is Jesus, could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. Now, on the one hand, that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, that's still a pretty remarkable work. And what Mark is saying here is not that somehow Jesus coming into this this area was somehow not able to do anything more. Not that that the the woman with the the flow of blood, when she touched him and he felt the, the power come out of him, that he somehow still needed to be recharged. It's not that he wasn't able to do it. However, the Christ works how and when and where he desires to act, but in many situations he chooses to act in accordance with the faith of those he finds there among the people. And these people had none, or at least very little. It's probable that he could only heal a few sick people because only a few sick people were brought to him to be healed because there was no faith there in Nazareth. There were some because there were some healed. A few. The rest, verse 3 tells us, took offense at Jesus. And so Mark says in verse 6 that he marveled because of their unbelief. Elsewhere, the people marveled. Here, Jesus marvels. Why does he marvel? Because of their unbelief. The people of Nazareth had so many reasons to believe. They heard the same teachings that they'd heard in Capernaum. And Galilee, they saw the same miracles. And it caused Jesus to marvel, to marvel at the hardness of heart. Now, though he was marveled, that didn't mean he was surprised. And neither should we be. Unbelief is, after all, the default condition of the human heart, isn't it? No one believes on their own. No one believes naturally. No one is talked into true faith. The fallenness of man makes that impossible. Man can only believe in Christ as a result of a divine work of the Holy Spirit on his heart when he takes the promises of the gospel and drives home those truths about forgiveness and grace and sovereignty to the human heart. Man can only believe as the Spirit does that work, as the Spirit gives him faith to believe. And so what the people thought here of Jesus was that they were offended of him. What do you think of Jesus this morning? Do you believe? Or are you offended by Christ? The word there in verse 3 for offend is the word from which we get the word scandalized. Are you scandalized by Jesus? By what he represents? By what he teaches? 
Are you repelled by the gospel? Many people are repelled by the gospel. Are you repelled by what it says about you? About your need? About your lack of ability? Are you offended by the simplicity of the message? Perhaps the requirements are too simple. Would you believe if God asked you to do some great deed, some act of heroism, go on some long pilgrimage? But the gospel is that he has already done all of that. He has done the great deed. He has done the necessary deed that can bring you from sin to salvation, from death to life. He did it. There's an old advertising slogan that goes something like this. We do the work so you don't have to. And that's the gospel. That Jesus did the work of redemption so you don't have to. We talked about it earlier in the service today. Jesus fulfilled the law so you don't have to. Jesus took the brunt of the judgment of God against sin so you don't have to. All you have to do is believe it. Is it unbelievable that all that is required is faith? Well, in a sense, maybe. Unbelievable in the sense that it seems too good to be true. Is it unbelievable then also that he even gives you the faith? That's not even something that you work up on your own. Well, people, this morning, it is amazing. It is counterintuitive. It is more than any of us deserve. But that is why it is called good news. Because it's a gift. Don't be offended by Christ. Embrace Christ. Trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. That is the message you need to hear this morning. Let's pray. Father, we begin by praying that if there is anyone here who does not trust you, who has not in humility fallen before you and said, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. If there's, no, if there's someone here who has not done that, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in them, that they may not disbelieve, but believe. Lord, for we know that your word says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that whoever trusts in Christ will be received by Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do that according to your grace and according to your will. For those of us who have done that, Lord, we pray that you would remind us what a great gift it is. We pray that you would remind us that there are so many who will not believe, but that you have by your grace given to us that gift 
of faith whereby we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to rejoice in our salvation. Lord, cause us to check our hearts to make sure that we are trusting in Christ and and not saying we trust in Christ, Lord, but trusting in anything else. Help us, Father. And may Christ be glorified through it. In his name we pray these things. Amen.